Welcome to the Slavic Connection. I am Tom Rehnquist here without Matt today, sadly. Today, we have a terrific guest, Leonid Rogozin. Leonid is currently a freelance journalist. He has worked for the BBC and Bloomberg. He is from Russia and is currently based out of Latvia. I believe that Russia is, is an integral part of the broader, the greater West. It just plays a very certain role. We discuss a number of things, including uh, the depiction of Russia in Western media. It is, it is a scarecrow, it is the marginal uh, personality. And quite a bit on his work on Ukraine. This is a great listen and I hope you enjoy. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Alrighty, Mr. Rogozin, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very glad we could set this up. I've been following you on Twitter for quite a long time. I feel like I'm meeting, you know, a hero. It's uh, it's very humbling. So I first want to say in your Twitter bio, it says nationality journalist. So you've been freelance for some time. I'm curious if you could tell us what that's like, what it's like kind of going from place to place, writing wherever you can. Well, nationality journalist is... Uh, it's largely because people tend to tend to perceive me from from the point of view of me being uh, originally from Russia, and that I, I find quite uh, debilitating because partly because my my personal history is not uh, is not exactly Russian. I've never really worked for Russian media, but I worked for English language Western media for for the last twenty years. I spent 12 years in the BBC and after that I was mostly writing for Bloomberg and, and other English language uh, media. And I'm also a Lonely Planet um, author. I authored various travel guides to, to Russia, Ukraine, Baltic countries, Germany, Greece and so on. So yes, I am from Russia on the one hand. Uh, on the other hand, I'm, I'm very opposite to being a patriot. I'm not a patriot. <laughs> You can't make it sound like there's sort of a bias against people who see you as a Russian journalist. Do you think at least the Western media expects you to feel a certain way about the country or to have a certain style in writing? And you think sort of being freelance gives you more freedom from that? Well, uh, exactly. My general view of nationality is is of a modern serfdom. It's, uh, it's something you uh, it's something you carry with yourself, and in in people's perception of you, it it reflects as well. So it's, it's just something you can't really get rid of. But what I'm striving to be is, is just being objective. And I have quite a religious attitude to, mm-hmm. uh, to, to being obje- objective to, to an extent that uh, I quite often, I, I realize that quite often I uh, come across as, as too extreme or even, even biased. And the underlying goal is, is, is objectivity, essentially. Do you find it difficult to be objective when you're writing about Russia, being that it is it was your home and is your home for quite a long time, um, and but covering it as a journalist is so really perilous? Uh, well, yes, uh, but um, when when I was based in Russia, it was um, kind of quite easy to distance yourself from it. Because back 20 years ago, when uh, Putin was elected, and a vast majority of Russians uh, were supportive of it, and and I wasn't, I uh, I felt myself uh, so marginalized and so so distant from from the majority of people in Russia. 
that uh, it was tantamount to what in Russia they call inner emigration. So the, the only the only way to cope with it was uh, to to basically regard this as a as another country. It's just a country that I'm visiting, mm-hmm. that I'm writing about, that I'm uh, doing my journalism about. But otherwise, I wasn't I wasn't sympathizing with that majority, and I wasn't sympathizing with what was happening in Russia during those during those years. And in a, in a paradoxical way, I two decades later, I sort of came to understand that uh, Putin's uh, years, Putin's decades, they didn't entirely consist of uh, repression and uh, clamp down on democracy and human rights. They were quite tremendous here in terms of economic development. And given Russian history in the 20th century, by comparison with the experiences people had in the last hundred years, it's hard to say this, but indeed these were the, the best, uh, the best uh, decades by far. Not just in terms of material wealth, but uh, also in terms of freedom. Because freedom is not only about uh, voting for sometimes very corrupt politicians without much of a choice as we had back in the 1990s in Russia. Freedom is also about choosing your lifestyle, choosing where you live, what you do, something that people lacked uh, back in the Soviet times and also lacked in the 1990s uh, in democratic Russia just because of poverty. Uh, but they did acquire it uh, during Putin's years. And that's that's one important side of the complicated picture. Yeah, I imagine choosing between Yeltsin and a retro communist party in 96 isn't necessarily, you know, the ideal freedom that we all have in our head. But I, I am interested in sort of, you talked about when uh, Putin actually came in power, you were sort of immediately opposed to him. I don't know if I have much of an impression of just how on the street Russians felt about Putin in 2000. Well, first of all, I mean, we're talking about years and now it's decades. It's, it's so long ago. What was it about him or what was it about the country that made you uh, in the minority? Well, uh, back at that time, Putin was a consensus figure. And it was the consensus between between the liberals and the um, so-called, um, with, with the majority of people that are that is essentially apolitical, that essentially doesn't want to be bothered by the politicians and who just want to uh, feel good, live, live well. And they're not extremely ideological. And that was an alliance against what the liberals were uh, seeing as the red and brown menace back at the time. And so among the um, opposition figures today, you find many, many people who were quite vocally supportive of Putin's candidacy back in 1999 and uh, 2000. And to, to give some examples, uh, Boris Simtsov, for example. Pavel Pavel Shirimet, uh, the the slain um, Russian Belarusian Ukrainian journalist, who who was essentially part of Putin's campaign um, back at the time, many uh, other people. So Putin was uh, the proclaimed successor of Yeltsin. So there was this idea of uh, succession, also in, in terms of democracy. And uh, he convinced not just Yeltsin's family, he convinced uh, many, many different people that that's, that's exactly what he's going to be. And maybe he believed in it at that time. Дорогие друзья, сегодня в новогоднюю ночь я, как и вы, с родными и друзьями собирался выслушать слова приветствия президента России Бориса Николаевича 
Ельцин. Свобода слова, свобода совести, свобода средств массовой информации, права собственности. Эти основополагающие элементы цивилизованного общества будут надежно защищены государством. С Новым годом вас! С Новым веком! But uh, speaking seriously, uh, what, what happened in Yugoslavia, what happened uh, later in Iraq, it did influence uh, Putin, it did influence Russia, and this Western triumphalism back in the 90s and in the early two, uh, in the in the noughties as well, it did um, send Russia on on its uh, current uh, trajectory, or at least contributed to it. So I'm curious about, yeah, you mentioned Yugoslavia and that's sort of the NATO bombing of Serbia in 99, which is still constantly referenced by Putin and sort of um, higher Russian figures. Do you think that is a genuine sort of defense that they were attacking the Slavic identity? Uh, the NATO is, a, you know, their encroachment is actual um, an existential threat. Or do you think that's more of a propaganda pull to sort of centralized Russian Slavic identity and push it against the West? I'm basically, do you think it's a cynical ploy or do you think there's actual truth to what he's saying? I think identitarian issues when it comes to Russia are greatly overrated in, in the West. It's not so much about identity. It's, it's, about, it's about the feeling of injustice. And, and yes, identity in the sense of identifying with the Serbs, not because they are Slavs, but because Russians could feel they could be the next ones in turn after the Serbs, that uh, they themselves could be in a in a conflict with Ukraine, for example, or over Crimea, as, as happened later. It, it felt, uh, they, they did feel that they could be treated in the same way. And it, it becomes an issue of, of personal safety. And, uh, and then at that point, it goes across the air. People who may not be very fond of Putin or may even hate him, when they face what they perceive as external threat, then, uh, yes, it is quite possible that they will uh, mobilize um, around the figure they hate. They, that's what happened during the World War II, when, um, if you talk to a United Russia ideologists today, they would often say that um, the nation, the, the current Russian nation, was born as a result of World War II, and that before 1945 it was all civil war, and that Stalin's repressions were a part of this uh, continuation of civil war, But it is the World War II, not Stalin, not the Bolsheviks. It is the World War II, the external threat that cemented uh, this nation, that created this nation. 
And this is always a risk uh, in relation between Russia and the West. The West is quite genuinely perceived as a threat. And when um, later troops are located uh, 600 kilometers away from Moscow or 100 kilometers away from St. Petersburg, as it happens now in, in the Baltics, yes, there is, there is a concern because, again, we're, especially now when we watch the West in disarray, we watch leading countries in the West with, with uh, leaders in charge who are just unstable. And that, that in turn means that if, if people can elect somebody like Donald Trump or Boris Johnson, they can elect uh, somebody who is worse or somebody who is extremely anti-Russian or xenophobic towards Russia. And uh, what we hear from the Democrats who get too, too involved, too obsessed with Russiagate issues, you, you can detect uh, quite a great deal of uh, xenophobia there, or what um, at least feels like xenophobia if you are from Russia, if you speak Russian language. So yes, the, the concern is, the concern is uh, genuine. And I guess there is this tone deafness uh, in the West and uh, uh, in America in particular that uh, needs to be tackled in order to, to, to build some kind of dialogue with, with at least a part of Russian society. So I'm glad you brought up that xenophobia, which has become so common on the left side of the American political culture. It, it really seems like Russia is the last country that you're allowed to just be openly racist towards. And it's a punchline or it's like journalism. It's good media. When do you think this started? Do you think it started with 2016 or, yeah, I mean, you know, you watch American action movies and the Russian bad guy has just kind of always been there. And it's kind of like the, the tap water option. It's not going to upset anyone. It may be, you know, it, it works, it functions as, you know, a character device. Um, what's your impression of that overall? I think xenophobia towards Russian is, um, it's, a, it's an ancient phenomena. And it's not an American phenomenon. It comes from Europe. Comes, uh, it has been, has been there for centuries and it's the product of competition between empires. It's, it's essentially uh, imperialist propaganda from the 19th century that's been transformed into, into modern Western propaganda during the Cold War. And there, there are many uh, layers in it, but I think the, the main um, Cold War layer although it is also quite ancient, is regarding Russia as a non-European nation. And that has always had very strong uh, racist undertones. Again, you can see it in films, you can see it in, uh, in various cartoons, especially back in the early 20th century, in the 19th century, it was uh, Russian sort of non-European as it was uh, visualized. So in the 20th century, uh, people avoided this sort of explicitly uh, racist visualization. Although if you look, even when it comes to um, depicting Russians positively, if you think of Schwarzenegger playing a Russian character and uh, a uh, Russian, Russian policeman, he's, um, Schwarzenegger is obviously a white guy, but uh, then um, again, it's, it's about depicting Russians. Uh, they, they have Schwarzenegger there because they want to depict Russians as, uh, as an alien civilization, as, uh, you know, as Klingons somebody from a warlike tribe from a distant planet that can be um, very hostile to America or at some points it can be friendly with America like during World War II or with uh, Schwarzenegger, you know, helping American policemen. But um, all in all, it's just, it's just a very distant civilization. And 
and you find vestiges of it uh, everywhere and I guess most importantly in uh, contact on the clash of civilizations. I mean, the uh, elite American scientist, political scientist, in many ways the father of American political thinking today, actually thinks of Russia and of other countries as uh, different uh, civilizations. If you if you were brought up in, in Russia or in the Soviet Union, it, it feels quite unjust. I mean, communism in uh, Russia was very much the product of European civilization, if you, if, you, if you call it civilization, which is a matter of debate. But it is, it is a product of European culture. It is a product of European political culture, and it was uh, created by Europeans. And uh, the, the way uh, the way communism was brought to Russia, it was very much how Al Qaeda spread uh, its influence over Arab countries. Bolsheviks were internationalists. It were people from various parts of Europe, various countries uh, that are independent countries now. And they essentially occupied Russia. Few people realized that it was Russia, I mean, what we call Russia today. It was this this part of former Russian empire, which offered uh, perhaps the strongest resistance to the Bolsheviks. Millions died in the Russian Civil War and millions more had to be killed by Stalin in order to, to, to make this, this regime sustainable. So when Russians are being dismissed as, uh, as non-Europeans, they, they do find themselves in this uh, cultural vacuum. I mean, they are obviously not Asians. They know, you know considerably less uh, about Asia than, uh, I mean, 80% of Russians live in European Russia, in the European part of Russia, and they know less about Asia than, you know, residents in, of London who at least have a chance to right. go find a town, or New York for that matter. Russia is, is quite extreme in its Europeanness uh, because, because the immigrant population until very recently was, uh, was, quite, was quite small. There, there were all the ethnic minorities in Russia and some of them Asian, but Russia, the bulk of Russia is, is quite European. So uh, that's the issue which is it is it is a form of xenophobia as far as I'm concerned. That's such an interesting take comparing the spread of Al Qaeda and terrorism and communism through Europe. I guess I've really never made that connection. I've I've heard before this kind of adage comparing sort of Russia and Japan, oddly enough, that Russia is European but not Western and Japan is Western but not European. Do you do you agree with that kind of take or do you think that's actually doing more harm than good? Because it's still contributing to this othering of Russia compared to European countries. Well, I guess um, I guess the, the, the West uh, and Western, it's, uh, it's becoming not a very helpful term, mm-hmm. especially now when the uh, political West spreads all the way to the Russian border and countries like uh, Bulgaria are, are regarded as the West or Latvia, where I live, is, is, is also regarded as the West. So at least if, if you look at the map of Europe, then you, you start to wonder, <laughs> where is the East? <laughs> Most people don't own maps of Europe, sadly, in America. Especially when it comes to those people who dismiss Russia as non-European. So I, I think there is, there, there is this uh, part of the world that is, uh, that is quite culturally integrated, which includes Europe and uh, North America. And, uh, and Russia is very much a part of it. The issue is with 
with its uh, behavioral role. The role which uh, it, it chose for itself and the role that was uh, also to an extent imposed on it. So you mentioned Pavel Shiremet earlier, and I know you did recently publish a large two-part piece about his work. Why don't you give us a little background on that story? Because I don't think it's one that's very well known in the West. So uh, apologies, I shouldn't say West. We just talked about how <laughs> that's not a helpful term. Uh, unknown to me, uh, an American liberal. No, no, no. It's uh, no, it's, it's fine. Uh, people have to explain things. Uh, people have to become schematic, and uh, then when you look at things on the ground, then. Uh, then you find how how complicated the uh, the real picture is. And uh, Pavel Sheremet is one example because he's originally from Belarus and he uh, started his career as a journalist in Belarus. And he was at odds with uh, President Lukashenko back in the 1990s. His his, com- uh, his cameraman was uh, killed actually, and that was one of the main political assassinations during Lukashenko years. And then he uh, moved to Russia, which was still regarded as a democratic country back at the time. And he um, essentially was on Putin's campaign. But then very quickly, he realized that Putin is is not his ideal. So he continued to work in Russia. And shortly before Maidan revolution in Ukraine, he moved to Ukraine and became a Ukrainian journalist and a very prominent Ukrainian journalist. He was not the only Russian journalist who who moved to to Ukraine, but he was was among the, the most prominent. So Pavel Sheremet, he was definitely, very definitely pro-Maidan. And in, uh, in some ways even uh, could be regarded even as a Ukrainian nationalist and in some of his uh, statements and, and some of his writings. But he was assassinated in uh, July 2016. It was a car bomb in the um, middle of Kiev. Police forensic teams began investigating... The, um, the Ukrainian authorities at the time uh, immediately on the same day blamed Russia for doing it. And the president, the interior minister, promised rapid uh, investigation and bringing the, those responsible to, to court. But ne- that never happened. And the investigations uh, dragged on and on uh, through Poroshenko's term without any suspects being identified. But at the same time, the journalists, our colleagues, were doing their own investigations. And one of the best investigations that was done was by Slitsvain uh, 4, a Ukrainian outfit funded, as far as I remember, by Radio Liberty. And they found that an agent of uh, SBU, of Ukrainian Security Service, was at the scene when the bomb was planted under the car. He was actually doing surveillance in, in front of uh, Sherimet's house. So that, uh, that made people think. There have been a number of high-profile killings in Kiev in recent times. And later, when President Zelensky got elected, the head of police met with Zelensky, and he said that in, during Parashanka years, there was systemic resistance to, uh, to the investigation into the death of Pavel Shermet. And then when people started really thinking that it has nothing to do with Russia or Putin or anything, that it happened within Ukraine for internal Ukrainian reasons. And then later in 2019, uh, the suspects were arrested and they turned out to be uh, Ukrainian army volunteers, like people uh, of uh, nationalist convictions. And um, the motive, the authorities have said that the motive was the um, nationalist or even uh, at that time they said even fascist views and the desire to destabilize the situation in Ukraine 
and uh, to to achieve some outcomes they, they they wanted to achieve, but that wasn't really specified what kind of outcomes. So with the Ukrainian outfit uh, Zabarona, we started uh, this investigation, which is which by no means is finished. We got hold of parts of the uh, criminal case and uh, parts of the criminal case that weren't previously publicized. And uh, within this uh, within these documents, we found uh, the mention of a description of a, a person who is actually connected to Russia directly, who is being described by a witness as, uh, as an organizer of this murder. So it was this Russian lead, Russian trail that the Ukrainian authorities were so desperate to find back in 2016, but uh, for unclear reason, uh, they didn't follow it. So that was, that was, quite, that was quite surprising. And we try to we try to understand uh, we try to analyze uh, why the police decided not to pursue this uh, this this lead, and eventually uh, studying this person who happens to be a close business associate and a friend of a fugitive Ukrainian minister who was part of uh, President Yanukovych's government but uh, fled uh, to Moscow after, after the revolution in 2014. So there was this political trail. It was clear that it is, it is somebody uh, directly related to, to Russia and the Russian forces in Ukraine. So essentially, um, Shiremet was a journalist pro-Maidan in Ukraine who was killed. And it seemed like Ukrainian authorities ignored a trail that would have brought the murder back to Russia and a former Ukrainian minister. Are those kind of the players involved? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, that was quite surprising. So we came to conclusion, long story short, that this report against this person was actually slander. It was inserted in the investigation with the aim of pointing finger towards Russia. And for some reason, they didn't pursue it. Basically, the, the person who, who brought this uh, accusation into the case, she is, um, she is a wife of a prison ward. They are an internally displaced person from Donetsk. They were in Ukraine and in 2016, we found out that uh, right at the time when she brought this accusation, they were in dire situation. Uh, her husband was about to lose the job as, uh, because of the reform of the penitentiary system in Ukraine. But we also found out that we found a connection between Sherman's case and the case of this fugitive minister, Klimenka. And there was an element of fabrication in, in Klimenka's case which brought us uh, to a conclusion that people who who tried to accuse uh, a person from Klimenko's outrage of killing Sheremet, they were directly related to fabricating uh, the case of this uh, fugitive minister. So that's, that's where we are now uh, with this investigation. And we are also looking in the, into the broader context of Ukraine in 2016, when uh, the more militant, more nationalist part of uh, Maidan of, of post-revolutionary Ukrainian government completely lost popularity. I'm talking specifically of the Popular Front party, led by the then Prime Minister Arseniy Yatsenyuk. By the start of 2016, their popularity fell from 22% during the election to less than 1%. 
And uh, the idea of new elections was in the air, and these elections would them would would have washed them away completely. And this minister in Moscow was uh, one of the um, political leaders who um, were planning their triumphant return to Ukraine in 2016. What we see at the end of 2016 is that these people retain power despite zero popularity. That minister did not return to Ukraine. Uh, his party project was uh, completely uh, dismantled. So that's what we believe is uh, uh, is crucial political context in the frame of, of which we'll continue this investigation. But of course, we'll be looking for all the other leads as well. So what do you think the story tells you about Ukraine in 2014 leading to Ukraine today? Because at least from the American tr- perspective, it reminds me a bit of Belarus, where sort of American liberals can be excited about democracy and freedom and then kind of stop paying attention. And now the country is not necessarily in the end that we thought might have come out of uh, 2014. Where do you think Shiramet's story fits into that? Again, if we, uh, in, in, in broader terms, if we talk about the relations between Russia and the West, then Ukraine was supposed to be a post-revolutionary Ukraine was supposed to be this showcase of democracy. And uh, I personally hoped that uh, it would become a role model for Russia itself. It's a, it's a to, to a large extent, Russian-speaking country. And it is, it is a country where uh, Russian speakers were very much supportive of the revolution. And uh, if they succeeded, not just in uh, toppling Yanukovych's regime, but in, in achieving some success in terms of economic reforms, but more importantly, in terms of the reforms of uh, institutions such as prosecutor's office and the courts and the police, uh, then it could serve as, as a great example for Russia itself. Unfortunately, it's a failure on all fronts, as, as far as I'm concerned. Ukraine is now the poorest country, officially the poorest country in Europe. The If you look at uh, GDP um, uh, per adjusted for purchasing power, and then Russian Russian GDP is three times bigger than Ukraine's. People just live much better than in Russia. Everything is organized better in Russia. In terms of accessibility of the state, in terms of easiness of dealing with the state, uh, Russia has gone much further in terms of reforms, actual reforms, than Ukraine under Putin. And that's, and that's a problem. And then when it comes to rule of law, Yes, politicians, uh, there were political assassinations in in Russia. Uh, Boris Nemtsov was killed uh, in uh, 2015. Anna Politkovsky was uh, killed um, earlier. Uh, There were all those prominent um, assassinations. But within the uh, short span of two years, I believe, after Ukraine's revolution, there was a plethora of political assassinations in Ukraine. And when it comes to rule of law, we uh, we are looking into into those cases against against Yanukovych's entourage, and uh, we find what uh, Ukrainian media and uh, we ourselves describe as uh, uh, duty witnesses, like the same witness with very um, pronounced business interests, traveling from one case to another, unrelated cases, and in every case, this person says that uh, he is a part of this criminal group. And thus they sort of construct this criminal group. And he, at the same time, he is a witness in the crime. So he makes uh, he makes a deal with the prosecution. And then uh, he gets like a zero sentence, essentially. 
very, very super lenient sentence. And there was um, a trial, some of these trials, as in the case of uh, Kurchenko and the, a, a person, a, an oligarch who was considered uh, Yanukovych's wallet. Uh, some of these trials, they are held in total secrecy. In Kurchenko's case, the, the trial happened in the, uh, on the front line in uh, in the in the war zone essentially although everything the, the the alleged crime it happened in kiev obviously the prosecutors were military prosecutors from the department in charge of military crimes in the war zone and uh, the defense learned uh, learned about this trial at the time when the uh, appeal term ended <laughs> expired it was it was in complete secret, and uh, the verdict is is also classified up until now. And anti-corruption activists in Ukraine are trying to get hold of this verdict because nobody has seen it. <laughs> and then, uh, with all you know, best wishes that you have for Ukraine, uh, you start to feel that it is a very much like Russia in terms of the rule of law. B, it is less safe than Russia for journalists, for opposition politicians. And then you, you think about this, uh, this idea of, of Ukraine being a showcase. And uh, in reality, Ukraine is a very terrible advertisement for Western policy, for whatever Americas and uh, the rest of the West are capable to uh, bring into the post-Soviet space. So sadly, we're at the edge of our time. I don't think we spoke in, at all about Belarus or Navalny, which are two critical events going on. I do I would like to end with maybe tell us about what you're working on now and uh, what we can expect to see from you next. I'm I'm continuing to work on this investigations uh, investigation with Zabarona, this um, excellent uh, Ukrainian outlet, which I'm very proud to be cooperating with and very proud that they invited me. I'm also working on a book about the perception of Russia in the West with a Norwegian uh, co-author. So this book is going to come out in uh, Norway in May, hopefully, if it's not postponed by uh, COVID crisis. So in this in this book, I am I'm writing less about the perceptions, uh, but I'm writing, writing more about what Russia really is, about the texture of uh, society and about attitudes in Russia. So that's that's uh, largely based on uh, Volgograd, uh, the um, city where my family comes from. And I'm looking into family histories of a number of people from Volgograd uh, uh, throughout the 20th century and how those uh, family histories affected their current political thinking and what, what outcomes are possible, very different outcomes in terms of uh, how people perceive today's politics. Okay, great. Well, I look forward to do some press on that next May with you. But uh, until then, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was Leonid Rogozin. You can follow him on Twitter. He is a great follow for staying up on your news with anything related to Russia or Eastern European affairs. As I always say, please go to your Apple podcast app. Click the Slava connection, scroll to the bottom, press a star, press one star. If you think I stink, that's fine. Just review, leave a message. You can text me and say mean things to me or whatever you like. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next week.
The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin.